For Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Mark Randall, beekeeper, ice cream maker, and assistant professor at Parsons School of Design in New York, shares his understanding and appreciation for honeybees in a presentation given at the Western Sullivan Public Library. A hive of bees will fly 55,000 miles and visit 2 million flowers to produce one pound of honey. A worker bee makes about a twelfth of a teaspoon of honey in her six-week lifetime. Every drop of honey represents the life of one worker bee. All of that in Keith Hubbard's Star Talk coming up on today's Farm and Country after news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. Around the globe, leaders are pledging to help Morocco after last night's earthquake there killed more than 1,000 people. And as rescuers try to reach victims in remote mountainous areas, the death toll is expected to rise. The epicenter was some 45 miles outside of Marrakesh, a historic city that also sustained damage. Many world leaders are meeting in New Delhi at the G20 summit, where President Biden is working to cultivate relationships with allies and counter China's influence. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the U.S. is set to host a summit. The United States will now formally be the host of the 2026 G20. So this year we've got India. Next year we've got Brazil. In 2025, it's South Africa. And then 2026, the United States. That's National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan speaking from New Delhi. G20 leaders also released a statement on Russia's war in Ukraine that does not condemn Moscow for its invasion. Rather, it calls on all states to refrain from using force to take territory. Also today, the G20 welcomed a new permanent member, the African Union. Sushmita Patak has more from Delhi. The G20 consists of the European Union and 19 of the world's biggest economies. On Saturday, applause rang out as India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi welcomed the African Union, consisting of 55 states, to take its seat as a permanent member of the organization. Modi said the move would strengthen the G20 and the voice of the Global South. Under its presidency this year, India has been advocating for a more inclusive G20. In another win for the developing world, the White House has announced that President Joe Biden is leading an initiative with the G20 to expand the role of the World Bank to better assist low- and middle-income countries. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Delhi. Florida's Supreme Court is hearing arguments regarding the state's 15-week abortion ban, which Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law last year, and it could result in an even stricter ban. Joe Mario Pedersen of member station WMFE reports. The state of Florida is arguing that the right to privacy there covers a narrow scope and only protects residents' informational right to privacy. ACLU attorney Whitney Lay White argues that right includes decisional privacy, too, and noted that Floridians weighed in on abortion rights back in 2012. Where voters were presented with the opportunity to overrule precedent in precisely the way the state is asking the court to do now and to weaken protections for abortion rights under uh, Florida's constitution. Should the Florida Supreme Court rule in favor of the state, that would trigger an even stricter six-week abortion ban 30 days later. For NPR News, I'm Joe Mario Pedersen in Orlando. This is NPR News. 
This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Mark Randall, local beekeeper, beeline ice cream maker, and assistant professor at Parsons School of Design in New York, shares his understanding and appreciation for honeybees from a presentation given at the Western Sullivan Public Library back in August. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with Star Talk. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. There are five planets that have been known since antiquity. Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. They were first distinguished from the background stars because of their brightness and the speed at which they moved across the sky. Together, these five planets are known as the naked eye planets because they are visible to the unaided eye. But there is a sixth planet that can be seen with the unaided eye that escaped detection for millennia. It was long mistaken for a star due to its dimness and its slow movement across the sky. Uranus was not discovered until 1781 when William Herschel first spotted Uranus through his telescope. Being a gas giant, it is composed of hydrogen and helium and is more than four times as large as Earth. The planet is very difficult to spot with the unaided eye. It is just barely bright enough to be visible in the sky. An extremely dark sky is needed to see Uranus, a sky far from city lights and free from moonlight. Even then, Uranus still only appears as a small, dim point of light. With the new moon coming on Thursday, this week is a good time to try to find Uranus. To have your chance to see Uranus, look to the east this week after midnight. Uranus lies 7.5 degrees off Jupiter's lower left side and 9 degrees to the right of the Pleiades. Find the darkest sky you can and then try to spot the ever-elusive sixth naked-eye planet. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Mark Randall, local beekeeper, beeline ice cream maker, and assistant professor at Parsons School of Design in New York, shares his understanding and appreciation for honeybees in a recent presentation given at the Western Sullivan Public Library. A hive of bees will fly 55,000 miles and visit 2 million flowers to produce one pound of honey. A worker bee makes about a twelfth of a teaspoon of honey in her six-week lifetime. So I always say that every drop of honey represents the life of one worker bee. Honeybees are the only insect that produces food consumed by us humans. And 3,000-year-old Egyptian honey is the world's oldest sample and is still edible. That's what makes honey so remarkable. Its antibacterial properties make it basically impervious to sort of decay. So it really does last for a really long time. The Latin name Apis mellifera 
is the amazing honeybee. And I always think of honeybees as kind of one of the true innovators of the natural world. And through this innovation, we as humans have kind of garnered a lot of inspiration. And so really, those are the two themes that I'd like to talk about today, is this idea of the kind of the, in, the innovation of bees in the natural world and how it's inspired us as humans. But first, let me talk a little bit about the importance of the honeybee, why they're so important to us. 70 out of the top 100 food crops are pollinated by bees. 90% of blueberries and cherries pollinated by bees. 100% of almonds pollinated by honeybees. So if there were no honeybees, we would have no almonds. Honeybees contribute over $20 billion to U.S. crop production. In 1947, in the United States, there were 6 million hives. In 2021, that had dropped down to 2.7 million. In April 2020 to April 2021, beekeepers across the United States lost a little over 50% of their hives. Us humans are putting a lot of stress and impact on honeybees, and that is what's causing these losses. One of them is monoculture. Imagine if you went to the supermarket and you only ate marshmallow fluffernutter. That's not gonna give you such a great diet. So this idea of monoculture, where bees are just pollinating single crops, they're basically eating only one kind of food. Pesticides are really impacting bees in a very strong negative way. A lot of states are trying to manage pesticides, but big agriculture is really pushing back around that. There's a varroa mite, which has been spread all over the world. That's really decimating honeybee colonies. Long distance trucking, you kind of the commercial beekeeping industry where they pack up thousands of beehives and then take them around to the different monoculture crops around the United States, put a lot of stresses on bees. All of that kind of contributes to this idea that you've probably heard of colony collapse disorder. All of these stresses are really negatively impacting honeybees. Let's talk a little bit about the structure of a honeybee colony. Honeybees, as we know, at the species that we of Apis, have been around for about 30 million years. Honeybees kind of evolved when flowering plants evolved, and they developed an incredible symbiotic relationship. The idea of the you know the bees would pollinate the plants. And because the bees pollinated the plants, the plants would provide them with nectar and pollen and all kinds of things. So it's really this notion of reciprocity, where the bees exist in nature in a way where they take, but they also give. Now, we humans just take. We rarely give when it comes to nature. But I think that that's one of the true like innovations that bees have really done an amazing job of of is that they take, but they also give. And through the relationship of honeybees and plants, the entire planet benefits. So many people benefit. Now, the first record of kind of human interaction with honeybees is 8,000 years ago from a cave painting in Spain. And it's, it's of a honey hunter clambering up the side of a cliff to get honey and beeswax from a, a, a beehive. And so humans, homo sapiens, emerged around 
300,000 years ago. So we have always grown up alongside honeybees. Now honeybees are what are, are referred to as a superorganism, and what that means is that individual bees work together to support the entire colony. No individual bee can live on its own, and it's really the collective ability of the colony to work together is what makes honeybees thrive. A really good strong colony is about 60,000 bees, which is pretty impressive. Honeybee colonies are made of three kinds of bees. There's the male drone, and the only job the male drone has is to mate with the queen. Then, of course, there's the queen. Her only job is to lay eggs. And then there's the female worker bee. Now, the female worker bee basically does everything else for the colony. It's truly a matriarchal society. And so what makes it even more matriarchal is that in the winter, the female worker bees kick out all the male drones because they serve no purpose. There are no queens to mate with in the winter. So they kick them out of the hive because they're useless. And then they raise new drones in the spring when they need the men around. The great thing about bees, too, is it's a truly democratic system. Uh, worker bee, as she goes through her life, performs every single job within the colony. So when she's born, she starts by cleaning the cells. And then after she's about 20 days old is when she starts to go out into the field to forage for pollen and nectar and, and to gather the things to come back to the colony. It's a very kind of democratic society where everybody contributes to the success of the whole. The queen is an egg-laying slave. She literally, all she does is lay eggs. She has no agency over how the colony operates. And then 15% of the bees are drones. Their job is just to mate with the queen. Then the other 85% of the colony are female worker bees, performing all the tasks of the colony. And it's really the worker bee that determine the life of the colony. It's these women, workers, who are really driving the life of the colony. Now, when bees go out into nature to forage, they're looking for three things. They're looking for water, they're looking for nectar, pollen, and tree sap. Bees have a really unique system of communication, unlike any other in nature, where they perform what's called the waggle dance. And through this waggle dance, they're able to tell their sisters in the colony the location, the direction, and the distance of a really great nectar source. So when they go out into nature and they tell their sisters where all this stuff is and they go out and get nectar and they get water and sap and pollen, they bring it back to the colony and they make beeswax, they make honey, and they take the tree sap and they use it, it's called propolis, and they basically use it like glue to glue the hive together, to like seal up holes, it's waterproof. It's an amazing substance. So they're able to make all this great stuff from what they forage. Honeycomb is like an astonishing feat of design, engineering, and strength. What's really cool about honeycomb is that the shape it's a structure 
it can kind of house the most amount of space and material with the least amount of actual material. So it's like a, a super great engineering structure. Bees in nature they don't live in boxes like we all imagine them to live, but they, they live mostly in like inside the hollows of trees. And this is where they build their honeycomb. Bees also sometimes build outside, and if they're building honeycomb not within the confines of the boxes that we give them, they make the most incredible organic shapes. I mean, I think they're really, really quite beautiful. What's cool about honeycomb, too, is that they use it for really the structure of how they run the colony. So it not only holds honey, but it holds the pollen that they capture and the pollen they use to feed the larva. And the brood and the larva are also raised in the honeycomb. So the structure of the honeycomb serves the colony in so many different ways. They can also vibrate their bodies to sort of use vibrations as a form of communication across the surface of the honeycomb. Bees are also really great at maximizing space. There's this notion of bee space. So the individual sheets of honeycomb are spaced exactly around 5 sixteenths of an inch apart. And that is the amount of space that two sets of bees need to pass each other within the colony. So again, they're really remarkable at kind of maximizing and utilizing space. Now, of course, we as humans take great inspiration from this. There's a company called Hexel in Connecticut that creates a honeycomb for commercial aerospace because it's an incredibly lightweight and rigid structure. So again, I, if we go back to this idea of innovation, I always think of bees as like the true innovators of design. They are like the, one of the first innovators of design on the planet. Frank Lloyd Wright in 1937 designed a very famous house in California called the Honeycomb House. And the entire floor plan of the house is based on this idea of hexagonal structure, maximizing the, the best way to use space. There's a, a small architecture firm in New York City called FrameLab. And they developed this conceptual project they call Shelter with Dignity. And what their idea was is to create these honeycomb structures that could be attached to the side of a building because the sides of buildings are disused space. Each one of these honeycomb structures is a pod for homeless people to live. And they're actually quite beautiful. I don't know where they are with this idea, but I've always found this project particularly inspired. I know everybody's heard about how bees swarming and they've kind of maybe been somewhere where they've seen like a giant mass of bees kind of landing on a tree. And what bees are doing when they're swarming is they're propagating the species. So this is where this notion of the worker bee sort of determines the direction of the colony. So once a colony is thriving and they're doing really, really well, the worker bees will kind of collectively decide, hey, you know, we're doing really well. We need to propagate the species and we need to divide. And so what they do is they raise another queen. Then when that queen is born, the old queen leaves the colony and half the bees go with her. So now there's two colonies. What beekeepers want to try to do is they want to prevent swarming. What bees want to do is they want to thrive and they want to swarm. So what's happening is 
The queen is leaving the colony. She'll fly outside and she'll land on a tree branch. And so what happens is, is all the bees that are following her will pile on top of her. So that's why you see this giant mass of bees sitting in a tree. The individual worker bees will then become what are called scout bees. And they will individually fly out around their neighborhood looking for a place to live. So if I'm a bee and I fly over to that tree and I see a great hollow in the tree, I'll come back and tell my sisters, hey, through a waggle dance, using the waggle dance that I talked about, to communicate, hey, there's a really potentially great place for us to move to over here. So then some people will go and look at that. And through a collective democratic decision-making process, the colony decides where to move. And so then they all will leave and go populate wherever it is that they've decided is the best place to live. So it's really, again, this really innovative idea of true democracy, working together collectively for the common good and making decisions collectively about the future of their livelihood. We'll switch gears a little bit and now sort of talk about how bees have impacted us humans creatively, culturally, and spiritually. So the god Ray wept, and the tears from his eyes fell on the ground and turned into a bee. Now, Ray is the uh, sun god of Egypt. The, the Egyptians were amazing beekeepers and wove beekeeping into all aspects of their society. They used honey to pay taxes as a form of currency. The symbol of Lower Egypt was a bee, and there's throughout Egyptian hieroglyphics, there's a lot of references to bees. They use beeswax to cover their writing and that they write on in papyrus to protect it. The idea of lost wax technique kind of used beeswax and came from ancient Egypt. Encaustic painting has beeswax in it. So the Egyptians really use honey and beeswax in all different kinds of ways. Napoleon used the symbol of a bee during his reign as a symbol of immortality and resurrection. The Mormons really weave beekeeping iconography throughout all of the imagery in the Mormon religion. The idea of community, of working hard, are all kind of symbols that the bees represent to them. Even the state seal of Utah uses a beehive, and their local baseball team is the, are the Salt Lake Bees. Utah is really into bees. All around the world, different cultures venerate bees. The Hindu goddess Bamari Devi is the, the goddess of bees. The Yoruba River goddess Oshun in Africa is a, an African deity that's dedicated to bees. In Mexico, the Mayan Amuzan Cobb is the Mayan god of bees and honey. So you go all around the world, beekeeping is kind of woven into these traditions and into the symbols um, that these different cultures use. There's a really great tradition called telling the bees from the 1800s. It's actually, they think it started kind of as a Celtic tradition, and the idea was that you would go and tell your beehives about important life events, especially if somebody had passed away. And that actually happened when Queen Elizabeth died. So when Queen Elizabeth passed away, 
uh, John Chapel, which was the royal beekeeper, put black bows and told the bees that the queen had died. So it's a tradition that some people still do today. So I'll just kind of wrap things up by talking a little bit about how I weave bees and beekeeping into the, all the things that I do. One of the things that I do um, is I'm an assistant professor at Parsons School of Design, and oddly, I teach a class on bees called Honey Bee Colonies Art, Design, Science, and Culture, and it really uses bees and beekeeping as a metaphor for how we see the world. The class is kind of divided into two structures. The first half, we focus on science and nature, and in the second half of the semester, we focus on art, design, and culture. One of the activities that we do in class is we build bee boxes to do what's called a wild bee hunting exercise. And the idea of wild bee hunting is how you can use bees to locate a beehive in nature. And you can actually kind of train the bees to come and go from a feeder, and by doing that, you can follow them to where they live. So we go to Central Park, and we use our little bee boxes to catch the bees, and then we train them to drink from these honeycomb, and the students put little dabs of paint on them. And then they time how long it takes for them to go to the hive and come back. And what's really great about this exercise is that the students, like, they just can't believe it's going to work. We start out by catching bees, and there's hardly any bees around. They'll put the paint on, and the bees will go away. Then, like, 20 minutes, they'll come back. They won't come back alone. They'll bring their sisters. So after we spent like an hour doing this, now we're in like this gigantic swarm of bees because they keep going back and doing that waggle dance and bringing more bees. It's a really great way for students to kind of get a really great sense of how bees work in nature. It's one of my favorite parts of our class. Now, as you can imagine, I'm a beekeeper, and I've been a beekeeper for over 20 years up here. We're fortunate to live in Sullivan County. It's an amazing place to have bee colonies. In the spring, the honey that we get up here in Sullivan County is really light in color. But this time of year, now that the goldenrod is starting to bloom, in late summer and early fall, it's really, really dark. And actually, it's the really dark honey that I love the most. I think it's got an amazing flavor. And so if you're ever looking at the farmer's market and you have a choice between light honey and dark honey, I would recommend getting the dark honey. For those of you who know who I am up here, I am the proprietor of Beeline Ice Cream. So I take the honey from my hives and I work with a local dairy in Pennsylvania and we make honey ice cream at the Narrowsburg Union. Every year we're fortunate here in Narrowsburg to have a fantastic honeybee fest. It's on Saturday, September 23rd on Main Street in Narrowsburg. It's a really great event. This will be the ninth annual Narrowsburg Honeybee Fest. There are a lot of vendors who sell honey. People come dressed as bees. I serve ice cream. It's a really great event and if you're in town, please come to it. I always like to end my talks with this quote that I, is one of my favorite quotes from Emily Dickinson. To make a prairie, it takes a clover and one bee. One clover and a bee and reverie. And that's by uh, the poet Emily Dickinson. That was Mark Randall sharing his understanding and appreciation for honeybees in a presentation given at the Western Sullivan Public Library in Narrowsburg, New York.
Instagram has more information on the ninth annual Narrowsburg Honeybee Festival on Saturday, September 23rd from 11 a.m. until 5. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteer Keith Hubbard. Special thanks goes to our guest, Mark Randall, local beekeeper, beeline ice cream maker, and assistant professor at Parsons School of Design in New York. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5 FM, on your phone or smart speaker, and online at WJFFradio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org I'm Callison Stratton, a singer-songwriter, public historian, and host of Liberation Station here on WJFF Radio Catskill. Liberation Station is a show that highlights the work of female and femme-presenting performers across genre and time. It's my little way of balancing the scales of representation on the radio. Join me for Liberation Station every Saturday evening at 7 p.m. only on Radio Catskill. Listen local.